I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. We're going to continue this morning in our series on a love letter from God. And this morning is kind of a special message for me because this is actually the very first book of the Bible I ever preached a sermon out of. Um, In fact, it was almost exactly eight years ago today. So give or take 10 days. So I'll ask you to stand as we read together both our key verse and our scripture for today, which is, again, Titus 3, verses 1 to 8, and John 3, 16, our key verse. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Titus 3, 1 to 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Lord, open our hearts to your message. Give us the ability to hear the words spoken and apply them as you would have us do. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear from you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I remember very well when I first gave this message. It was the culmination of a period of several years where I wanted nothing to do with the idea of preaching. I think I've shared some of this story before and how little I wanted anything to do with the idea of preaching ever. Did not want to be in this place ever. Didn't want anything to do with it. But God had other plans. But I remember especially the day that I preached this sermon... It was a Sunday night that I was going to preach, and I remember being so, so, so nervous. I was nervous not because the people that I was going to be preaching to weren't people that I knew. I had been going to that church for probably three years. I knew them pretty well. We had eaten together. We had shared things together. We had prayed together. They were um, people that I consider friends, still some of them to this day. They were, um, they were great Christians. They believed in me. They had already been encouraging me. But I was nervous because it was the first time that I was going to be taking the words out of Scripture 
and turning them around and giving them back to people as though I had some sort of authority and right to do so. And it's a scary thing to presume to speak for God. It's a scary thing to stand in this place, in this pulpit, and tell you what it is that the Bible has to say for you. But one of the things that I learned as I was preparing was that God doesn't call you to do something that God doesn't make possible for you to do. And so that is what I've done over the years in between then and now. I've preached a lot more sermons, but I'm going to re-preach this first message just because it's still applicable. And this absolutely has everything to do with the idea that God doesn't ask us to do something that God doesn't make possible for us to do. So this message was originally part of a series that the pastor was doing on Sunday nights on Titus. And he talked a little bit about what this meant. Paul is writing to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, Paul has given him instructions on finding uh, elders for the many house churches there. And his message for Titus in this letter has a certain urgency because there are some false teachers who are on this island who are propagating some dangerous messages. Paul has said to them that they are, uh, said about them that they are rebellious liars who are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not teach. He calls their teaching Jewish myths and the teachers detestable because they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. And Paul is really concerned for the Christians of Crete, too, that they are not growing in the faith adequately. Paul instructs Titus to get some people in place who are going to lead them, but he also gives him instructions for the way believers are to behave to each other. He gives us the foundation in chapter 2 doctrine. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all of us. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And he tells Titus what characteristics should be evidenced by various believers and points believers to each other as examples. As we pop back into chapter 3, where Paul continues to cover the behavioral changes that should happen in believers... He gives them a discourse on how they should interact with the world. Philip Nation, whose commentary I read, sums these verses up very well. He says, What I become in private, as God works on my life, should affect how I live in public as God works through my life. 
And it's helpful here to remember why this is of particular importance in Crete, not only because it frames the context of the passage, but because it is relevant to how we should apply this in our lives. You see, Crete was not a very nice place. Crete was mostly uh, a pagan place where people were humanistic and living in moral chaos. Probably doesn't sound anything like anyone or any place you know of today, right? Uh, Polybius, the Greek historian, says that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. Internecine means fought to the death. Cretans were known for being vocal about the Roman rule over them, and uh, they often did things to demonstrate their displeasure at the Roman Empire. Obviously, we often see rulers now who do things that are consistent with their fallen natures. They are corrupt or unjust. And based on that type of climate, those kinds of cultural attitudes, Paul has some very specific directions for Titus and the churches of Crete. First, we talk about how we should relate to the world outside the church. We remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Paul asked them to do all kinds of things, to be kind, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. But we know that... Uh, Paul is specifically speaking to these Cretans that way because they have a historical precedence for being in opposition to those who are in authority. These are people that idolize their leadership, execute people who disagree, and whose rule has been a hardship for this island. So Paul isn't saying that we should disagree. We should not disagree with a government like that sometimes. But he is saying that while we may disagree or feel that a government is not doing correct things, that we should be careful to be lawful and good citizens where we can. Where we can do those things without creating unintentional discord. In other places, scripture gives us a clear picture of what that means. For example, Daniel showed that appropriate disobedience was something that could happen when he described for us how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar when they said, We do not need to give you a reply concerning this if our God whom we are serving exists. He is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods, and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Obviously, when leadership is trying to turn your attention away from what is godly and what is good, respect for them means telling them the error of their ways. 
Paul turns also to a direct opposition to the false teachers that he mentioned in chapter 1. He talks about their minds and consciences being corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. He wants to be very clear to say that the people who are teaching that are good are very different from the teachers who are providing false information. He tells them not to slander anyone, to be peaceable, to be considerate, to live in kindness, to show true humility. We have to be very careful to distinguish behavior from a person. We have to be careful to show that what we do is not about diminishing who another person is. But instead, it is about saying that we do not believe with their uh, behavior. The Cretans are used to being horrible to each other, and being peaceable and considerate is a very radical concept. And showing true humility is a big idea for them. I'm not sure that these things are different for us today. I like the idea that Paul kind of talks about how we used to relate to the world. He said at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In other words, Paul isn't excluding himself from that. Paul is saying, we were idiots. (laughs) We weren't just idiots, we were sinful idiots. We were sinful idiots, we were jerks, and we hated each other. He says, I understand that you come from a culture that thrives on bad behavior and it can be difficult to change. After all, just because you no longer do those things or don't desire to do them, figuring out how not to do them is hard work. It has to be intentional and truthfully it can't be done on our own. But fortunately, Paul has a very encouraging message. The reason we want to change is the source of our ability to change in the first place. God doesn't ask us to do what God doesn't empower us to do. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit who will be poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So we have this idea of things we should do and we know who we are in verse 3 where it talks about how stupid we are as sinners. It tells us we know that these things are impossible for us to do. And Paul tells us that we are only able to do this list of things that change how we interact with the world because we have been saved 
by grace. This is the gap closer, the part that makes us able to do anything worth doing. We are so incapable. We automatically default to foolish, disobedient, deceiving, enslaving behavior. But Paul gives us the gospel message again and tells us that it is not something we earn. Instead, it is a thorough project undertaken by all of divinity to change the world one person at a time. Salvation is a thorough project undertaken by all three persons of the Trinity, Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, to ransom all of humanity. God's kindness and love made real to us in the person of Jesus. Through the incarnation, we know Jesus. And God gave him to us. And once Jesus had died and been resurrected and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out generously on us and begins the transformation in us. The rebirth of the person is done by the Holy Spirit. We represent this change through baptism. The holy water. That is where we die and are resurrected. Jesus gave himself up for us so that we could be righteous. He doesn't ask us to be righteous first so that he can justify giving himself up. Jesus never issues an invitation with a caveat or a subclause. He gives us grace, not because we earned it, but because we couldn't possibly. He never says, change yourselves and then I'll give you eternal life. No, he says, I'll give you eternal life and then I will change you. While we wait for the blessed hope, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, has made us eager to do what is good. The power of salvation isn't just about making us have to behave a certain way. It isn't just about making us line up our activities with a list of rules, but instead it is about changing our heart so that the desires of our heart become the desires of God's heart. And salvation and sanctification make these possible through God's mercy, Christ's sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit's power. And of course, salvation comes with another promise. One Paul points out in verse 7, he doesn't just save us from ourselves so that we can be better people. He makes us heirs of God's promise of eternal life. Heirs, not guests, not interlopers, but family. Ready to receive the same gifts that would be only for the children of the king. Our hope is eternity with one who calls himself our father. He wants us with him 
So he made a way for that to happen. So when Paul says that the Christians are in Crete are to be reminded to live this way, he doesn't say it without reiterating that salvation, the salvation that is provided, makes it possible. We can't change on our own. But when we are saved, God makes the impossible possible. I used to work for a company called Motorola Solutions, a big company that has been around for a really long time. And we talked about things called change management in corporate speak. But when you do change management, you ask people to accept a pretty big change in how things are done. And in order to get them engaged in the process, you do that you, you engage them in the process by saying you're going to tell them what's going to change. Then you tell them how that change impacts them. Then you tell them how the change will happen. And then you tell them why the change is important. All of these things are reflected in these verses that Paul wrote in Titus. Paul invented change management, if you really want to know about it. (laughs) He says, these are the changes that believers should be looking for. This is how the change impacts you. This is how the change happens. And then this is why the change is important. Paul says it in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. They should be changed. They should expect to be changed. Because they, as they relate to the world this way, as they stop being malicious and hateful, as they start being peaceful and humble, the world will want to know why. Someone once said to me, I don't want to change. Great. Perfect. You can't want to change until God changes you. God doesn't ask you to change before he saves you. He creates in you a desire to change that helps you accept the changes he's helping you make. God doesn't ask us to do what God doesn't make possible for us to do. The gospel is what makes transformation possible. And as people are renewed, remade, and reborn, this whole sequence of action continues. And in that way, it is excellent and profitable for everyone, not just the Christians. Not just the Cretans from long ago, but everyone. Paul is describing in a very detailed way what Jesus talked about with the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is how we live as salt and light in a world that is desperate for the love and kindness of God our Savior. When we intentionally, carefully, and devotedly live out the salvation we have by being ready to do what is good, we draw people to the only one who can truly transform their hearts and lives. 
as we've done every week in this series. We'll turn to our blue page now. And let's read together. What does it mean to say God loves? To create us, to form us from the dust. To let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's. To let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. To provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. To show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. To show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. To see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. To promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment of all. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. Beloved, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.